Get bent, you droopy Cusacks. What's the crack? Welcome to the Blind Buy podcast. You may notice that the audio fidelity is fucking disgusting. Listen to this. Postman, postman, postman. Because I'm away on business on the continent. And, yeah, I'm, I'm, in, an, I'm in an apartment with disgusting acoustics. It's just uh, a lot of reflective walls and surfaces. But luckily, I went out to a nearby park and recorded uh, this week's podcast in an ASMR fashion where we've got the lovely sounds of nature in uh, th- three-way three way stereo, boys and girls. All right? So, yeah, listen to the state of that. Sound of air conditioning, like, fuck that. And this is my good mic. So, it's it's a long podcast. This is a very long podcast. It's almost two hours because I had a, a successful rant. Uh, so, the first half is me speaking on the topic of climate anxiety and sp- how to kind of deal with it and other existential kind of existential psychology so um if you're into that crack into me talking about the human condition that's the first half the second half which starts about an hour into it is me reading a a, a new story from from my book boulevard rain which is out november 1st a pretty dark story um so that's it it's kind of a two-part podcast but it, it all happens in one in the park which I, I kind of I enjoy. I like these outdoor podcasts, where like like the one down by the Plassey River, because it's it's like it's like a it's it's less like a podcast. It's more like um like a a, a really bizarre radio play. Do you know? It's just got that vibe, like a strange radio play, because all the fucking the sounds around me work as a type of foley artistry, which is the if you don't know how would I describe foley artistry. It's the generation of sound effects within recorded media. Okay, right. That's the crack, okay? First half, climate anxiety. Second half, about an hour in, me reading a short story. It's a long podcast. Uh, You might want to listen to it in two settings. Or one setting, if you're a greedy cunt. Yard. Hello. What's the crack? Is that a little bit too loud? I'll take down the volume. I'll take that one, two, postman, 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 postman. Businessman, I'm a busy man, but I'm not a businessman. <clears throat> Alright, that was a little sound check. Um, as you can guess by the sounds around me, that this, this is, uh, I'm not in my studio, we're having another little outdoor excursion which I'm starting to really enjoy these particular type of podcasts where I take it outside you know sounds like I'm starting to fight with myself taking it outside but yeah taking the podcast outside for a relaxing ASMR experience with my fucking shit hot recording equipment where we have three channels of audio listen to that there you go. I'm not fucking around. <coughs> so yeah, we've got our stereo mic. And I have my own little microphone up towards my mouth. So we've got three channel 
fucking fully professional 360 degree audio quality Um, where am I? I'm over in Spain I'm in Spain on business because there's a lot of a uh, lot of new podcast listeners based in Spain so I'm over here trying to organise a um, couple of gigs see where we might get some people to turn up for some uh, blind by podcast gigs over in Spain so I'm over here doing that <coughs> feeling guilty about it because obviously you know my, my job involves fucking travel and you know even even using the ferry the ferry like air travel is a bit of a shit for when it comes to the climate you know so it's one, it's one of those things where you evaluate your own life and your own behaviour and you just feel like a little bit of a dickhead when it comes to your own carbon footprint and air travel is certainly one for me but as I mentioned a few podcasts back I kind of settle it with myself by I go on, go on there's another powerful motorbike I go and I get a, a carbon calculator online and I type in my flight and the, it'll give me the results of how much carbon my footprint was for that, that flight and then it calculates it into <coughs> money hold on there's a fly crawling up my leg it calculates it into money and uh, I can donate a certain amount of money towards a charity that will offset that carbon we'll say they'll plant trees or some shit like that you know um, so that's what I do so trip over to Spain isn't too bad I think it's like 12 quid so about 12 euro sometimes some airlines will be like do you want to give a, a charge towards um, your carbon footprint but I don't believe I don't trust the fucking airlines I just don't trust the cunts they'll find some it's just a snake I, I don't know I have no evidence to suggest any wrongdoings but I just don't trust it so I do my own carbon calculations and a flight to Spain is about 12 quid uh, so I, I'll donate 12 quid now towards a tree or two getting planted because that's a huge thing that we can do to offset carbon is obviously there's us adjusting our behaviour but <coughs> trees are the lungs of the world so there's a little small car coming over now if he fucking parks here we'll be in trouble fuck off you Spanish bastard go away two of them oh lads so it's like it's called a Piaggio uh, Piaggio what is that oh I'm thinking of Jean Piaget who's a a childhood psychologist he's one of the most prominent psychologists in, in uh, child psychology Jean Piaget who at the age of nine had written a published paper on an albino sparrow but no I'm, I so I'm in a public park and these little small strange vehicles went past it's it they're like vans but clearly underneath it, it's it's a motorbike and people who work in parks have them have we got some loud Spanish boys sitting across the oh lads would you shut the fuck up that's very very loud now I'm a foolish, foolish man for thinking that I could sit down in a fucking park. Again, they're like, they're 12 feet away from me. Imagine this, what podcast are you listening to? This fella, this fella blind boy, he goes and sits down in public places, right? And he records a podcast and then, and then he marvels 
at the fact that his own podcast is interrupted by people living their lives. That's the podcast that I'm listening to today. So, yeah, those lads are just over having a, a... They look like they're having a business chat, but because there's a woman having a fucking phone call. Fucking GDPR, lads. See, I can't understand the Spanish, you know, so... For fuck's sake. Hold on, I'll try and move now. I have a lot of wires hanging off me. I don't want to stop the recording if I can avoid it. So I'm going to move over to another seat over here, right? But the thing with this seat... This could be... Fucking Monty Python waiting to happen because... This particular seat is sit- situated directly in front of a playground... But there doesn't happen to be any children inside there right now. And I, as always, I look like I work for the fucking CIA with all my equipment... Okay, so we've got a new bench right here. No, sure, fuck it. It's a, it's a Tuesday. All the children are in school. So there'll be no children in this playground. And the only children who are not in school are children that have decided to, to mitch or bunk off, as you'd say in England. And no, no child who's bunking off is going to come somewhere as suspect as a playground because that's where you, that's where you, if there was a truant officer, the first place they're going to go is the playground. Okay, sorry. <coughs> okay, nice chaotic start to the podcast there. What was I talking about? Offsetting my carbon carbon emissions. So yeah, then some two Spanish businessmen decided to sit down and have a conversation. As is their right in a public fucking park. As is their entitlement and right. I'm the one who's wrong. Then... Oh no, the park workers are here now. What are they doing? They're chopping down bushes I'd love to go over to them now and have a chat about biodiversity but they speak Spanish and I speak English so we can't have that chat today he's got hedge clippers and he's he's launching into a bush I tell you what I'm in the south of Spain right I'm in a park the leaves are going brown they're falling down all around me right so it's clearly autumn now I've been in Spain at this time it's start of fucking October it's 33 degrees which is odd, we'll say. Usually, Spain at this time of year is about 22, which is gorgeous. No, 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 no. Right now, it, it, it 30 fucking 3 degrees, which is proper summer temperature. And everyone's walking around in shorts, but the leaves are falling off the trees, so... I met someone in a, in a bar last night and who had a bit of English, and they were, I, I, they were just like, how are you finding Spain? And I'm like, oh, it's grand, it's a bit hot. And they're like, yeah, global warming support the extinction rebellion protests please lads even though it's an inconvenience that's the whole point of it people are getting very pissed off saying like why are they protesting why are they why are the extinction rebellion protesters stopping bridges and why are they stopping traffic and people seem to think that like the protesters are trying to take their anger out on everyday people and it's like it's not they're trying to create civil disobedience they're trying to they're trying to peacefully create huge fucking inconvenience and headache because most people aren't taking this shit seriously most people aren't taking the clear evidence from scientists seriously they're either denying that it's happening or thinking that it's a hoax 
are a common one is this global warming isn't real it's just a brilliant excuse for the politicians to introduce more taxes the vast majority of people that I'm like most people aren't taking it seriously lads they're not taking the climate change thing seriously and so Extinction Rebellion are out in the streets making very loud noises and interrupting my day and your day and this is what they need to do because we're not paying attention and people go well fucking China China need to sort it oh yes a leaf blower a fucking leaf blower how the fuck am I supposed to get right I, I, I don't know can I get peace in this Spanish park I'm in the middle of a fucking city centre that leaf blower is going to come towards us and it's only going to get louder I'd hardly be able to walk around for a bit would I hold on we'll see about walking around for a little bit what I wanted to do was to read you some of my my book so we're now moving away from the leaf blower see I could go back over to the bench where I was a minute ago right here's another bench and there's no one sitting nearby it's still near the fucking leaf blower though Okay, we're walking away from the leaf blower. You see, you don't want to sit on a bench whereby when you sit in the bench, it's in the middle of the sun. Right, I have a place over here. Sands leaf blower. It's near a, a tree stump. Apologies for the lack of edits, lads, but I didn't bring my studio with me, so you're just going to have to bear with me. So what was I talking about? Yeah, people aren't taking climate change seriously. People aren't taking climate change action seriously. So because of this Extinction Rebellion, people are taking the day off work. Another critique I'm seeing again, not critique, criticism, begrudgery that I'm seeing about the Extinction Rebellion protesters online is... uh, I'd go out and protest, but I actually have a job. Shut the fuck up, Donald. Shut up. Um, these people have jobs as well. The vast majority of people who are out protesting in the extinction... Because it's, it's, uh, I think the next two weeks are going to be global protests in cities all around the world. for To get governments to... Like, governments are being very performative at the moment with their targets for carbon emissions. Like, even our own Irish government, it's very much... Oh, we give a... Like, because the thing is, the Greens... The Greens had a big win this year in Ireland, and not not just in Ireland, but around the world. It's, It's evident that people are starting to give a little bit more of a shit, but not enough. So... Governments like our own are realising, oh, if I just talk about the environment, people think that we're doing good. But the problem is, our own government are virtue signalling, is the only way to call it, about the climate and about climate action. But their actions are quite different. They're um, giving subsidies to fucking to the oil companies. Uh, in my own hometown of Limerick, they're after giving the green light for a fucking incinerator to burn rubbish and tyres. 
disgraceful activity um, up in Tala there about two or three weeks ago a vital wetland that contained uh, a lot of Dublin spawning frogs the council just fucking filled it in for no reason just insanity right and then our Taoiseach and our government came out about a month ago basically like 69 in themselves like sucking their own mickeys saying like this government is going to plant fucking 3 million trees aren't we class and we're doing this out of our own pockets for the interest of the climate and then you ask the experts in tree planting and they're going you're planting 3 million trees of the variety Sitka spruce which is not a native Irish tree it's isn't great it's it's not the best option for fucking absorbing carbon and you're doing it for the forestry industry what what needs to be if the government want to actually suck their own dicks or if they want to actually do something proactive with the climate that will help plant native broadleaf trees that's what's needed native deciduous fucking broadleaf trees that aren't going to get cut down that exist purely to absorb fucking carbon and to be forests right don't build them over old peat bogs peat bogs are important to biodiversity and the climate too so we need to be re-wetting our peat bogs whatever that means reintroducing water I'm guessing so our own government are virtue signalling we'll say with their climate action so this is why the Extinction Rebellion protests are happening these two weeks and I understand it is annoying right when you're trying to get to work and your bus is late because people are lying down in the middle of the road it is fucking annoying and it is inconvenient okay that's the fucking point lads that really is the point and the whole thing is it's not nice having to be late for work it's not nice if it's your day off and you're trying to relax and you can't get into town because there's protests it's very inconvenient and it's unpleasant right and it's okay to feel that way because that's what they're trying to do but don't fucking get pissed off with the protesters if you are annoyed that there's protesters in the street instead of calling them lazy bastards who don't have a job who have nothing better to do than fucking nail themselves to the ground for the climate don't fucking get pissed off with them you bootlicker get annoyed at why they're protesting because they're protesting for you like it's a minor inconvenience now to have protesters in the street it's a minor inconvenience if we don't sort this shit out in the next 10 years if the world doesn't get together and sort out this shit in the next 10 fucking years and this is what science is saying and climate breakdown occurs which isn't just water levels rising it's the collapse of society it's a very slow fucking process where there's like food shortages water shortages that will lead to rioting violent rioting and it'll be very very fucking slow and unpleasant okay so right now missing work in the morning because your bus can't get the fucking work because there's protesters right that's a tiny inconvenience compared to what will face you when you're older and your children if shit isn't done right now 
So please, for the love of fuck, if your bus is late because of Extinction Rebellion protesters, get off the bus and join them. Okay? And if your fucking boss asks you where the fuck you are, you say to your boss, I was on strike today because I'm concerned about the climate. Is that okay with you? And if your boss has a fucking issue with it, call him out. Call out the business that uh, doesn't support fucking climate action because they don't want to be that business they, their branding does not want to all uh, businesses now want a virtue signal about how much they give a shit about the climate so your employer does not want to be called out on that shit and I tell you what if they fucking do if you're trying to strike for the climate and you're, you're getting shit at work or you're getting threatened to be fired go on to fucking Twitter tweet at me and I'll retweet that to a lot of people okay because it's it's fuck that shit everyone has a right to strike these protests need to happen so that governments get to a situation whereby they realise if they don't actually act they will lose power or they may have difficulty running society that's what that's what these things are that's what needs to happen these people aren't lazy these people aren't doing it to piss you off these people aren't jobless and if even if some of them are who gives a fuck what does that matter be thankful that they're out there creating fucking noise for everybody's future and we should all support them and we should all join them um i mean there's a there's a there's an angry part of me i mean you're trying to get through to certain people about the climate and you're kind of thinking well if science isn't working if if actual evidence right science based rational evidence where you can trace and show fucking evidence fact based evidence if that's not working then you need to start appealing to people's emotions because we're not rational creatures we'd like to think that humans are rational we're fucking not okay elections decisions group movements it it very much happens it it comes from a place of feeling Uh, a place of feeling that's often motivated by fear and the problem with fucking climate change is like what's needed right is, is, is a kind of an overhaul of society in how we consume and kind of a drastic peeling back of what we would call conveniences we we have a fierce amount of conveniences in our life that you know they're not really necessary for us to for, you can still have a perfectly happy brilliant fucking fulfilled life without the huge massive conveniences and disposability that we have in our society things that serve uh, not just capitalism but consumerism you know consumerism being um desiring and buying things not based on your actual needs but on your uh, desires which is is kind of silly so if you look at world war 2 right and this was in both america and in in britain in particular because the nazis are a, a very clear threat it's like there's a group of humans right they're over there and they want to kill you that's really really simple humans understand that we deeply understand there's a lot of people over there and they want to kill us 
sometimes with a situation like the Nazis, it's completely accurate. It's like, oh fuck, they're evil boys. They want to do some bad shit. We got to stop them, right? Very clear and simple. Other times it's not. Other times, unfortunately, it's it's marginalized group like groups like refugees, where people go, look at those people over there. They're different. They want to replace us with no evidence. That's where emotion comes in. But emotions do drive action. Emotions drive action. More than facts and logic, I think. So when it was like World War Two, like they brought in like rations, like food rations and shit, where, you know, people didn't eat meat every day of the week because they understood that the meat was needed for the war effort to beat the Nazis. People didn't rely on easily accessible produce in their supermarket because so much food was needed for the war effort so people built victory gardens they rolled up their fucking sleeves the government put out a plan people learned how to grow things and people used a determination based on the emotion of uh, fear and wanting to win against a, a visible enemy and people were not eating meat that much and growing their own produce out the back garden. Both things are massively environmentally sound, right? Firstly, we all know, um, I've spoken about it many times, the way that meat is, is currently produced, it's not particularly sustainable and it has a huge toll on the environment and creates a lot of carbon, right? So that's why, you know, what, num- one of the number one things, what can you two do to try and, and offset your carbon footprint? try and uh, eat a hell of a lot less meat eat more plant based foods right that's one way uh, second thing e- even with a plant based diet there can still be quite a large carbon footprint because of just because of uh, the amount of travelling that certain foods have to do especially with free, tr- free trade agreements and shit you know when I speak about conveniences like, you know, you, you walk into Aldi there today and you'll get your fucking... You'll get fucking, I don't know, what was the last thing? A basil grown in Greece. Grecian basil. Like, that has a lot of a carbon footprint because all this produce, because of free trade. Like, and, and again, it's one of the benefits of free trade. You've got... Like, our, my dad, who would have grown up in the 40s, like, he, he never saw an orange... He, he knew that he'd never tasted orange juice. He'd never seen an orange. He'd heard of oranges. And he used to have an uncle. Uh, uncle John, I think his name was. And Uncle John, who was older, used to say to my dad and his brothers when they were kids. He used to tell them stories about oranges, you know. And he'd say, oh, I, I've seen oranges. I was over in America and I've seen an orange. And the boys would be like what do you mean tell us about the orange I've heard they're amazing I've heard they're so delicious and Uncle John would had a pocket watch in his waistcoat and he'd pull out the golden pocket watch and he'd tell my dad and his brothers this is an orange and so how the fuck are they supposed to know they don't know and, and Uncle John then has probably never seen an orange himself he's probably talking out of his arse he probably had an orange described to him as a a type of a round golden thing so he fucks out his pocket watch out of his pocket shows it to the boys and says this thing here is an orange so then anytime Uncle John would have a few whiskies and fall asleep they used to try and climb all over him when he was asleep in the chair and they'd pull his pocket watch out of his jumper 
and all the children would start trying to bite and eat the pocket watch un- until they damaged their teeth thinking that this was an orange and the thing is it's it's because we didn't really have we didn't have free trade agreements we didn't have you know transport was 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 a lot more restrictive a lot more expensive so something like an orange was a serious luxury item you know and it's t- it's a tough one to balance because you know oranges contain a lot of vitamin C but so do fucking blackberries lads and you can get them on the side of the road so th- we need to uh, society as a whole it, 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 things like how we get our food where our food comes from these are the things that need to be addressed in order to help the climate and it's something not far off the victory movement that we saw in World War 2 where something was, was actually addressed as, a, as the genuine existential crisis that it is the Nazis taking over the world is a genuine existential crisis that would result in mass extinction without doubt because that was their fucking plan climate change is, is of a similar climate change is very similar to the Nazi threat it's just over a slightly longer time scale and harder to see and a lot of current events in 10 years time we're going to look back at them and we're going to view them as, as, as things that happened as a result of the climate the Syrian war for example the Syrian civil war like a, a, a driving factor for the Syrian civil war was, was climate It's people say oh it was fucking ISIS it was Assad being a prick oh, yeah, all of that's true of course but underlying it in 2009 2010 2011 Syria saw three unprecedented droughts and the thing with Syria is cities like Damascus, which are quite kind of modern cities where a huge amount of the population were living. There was people living in, in Damascus, living, you know, modern kind of Western-style lives with the modern conveniences that you have in the West. But then outside of Damascus, in the rural areas in the village, you have people living kind of closer to how you'd live in Afghanistan, a much more rural, uh, impoverished way of living. People who subsided on their own land. And if there was a drought, then you have people who fucking, they can't eat. People from the country in Syria. So what happened was, 2011, there had been three droughts. And Damascus and other cities experienced a huge influx of refugees from the Syrian countryside. Who needed to travel to the cities because they had no access to food or fresh water. Because climate change caused a load of fucking droughts. And this influx of people into the cities of Syria caused the destabilization of society. Damascus could not sustain this amount of people. So the Syrian civil war while on the surface, you know, you can say, oh it was Islamic fundamentalism, oh Assad was a despot, all true but very much the 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 kind of the groundwork for it was laid out by the climate okay so we're already seeing this shit happening already I don't want to be fucking freaking you out I don't want to be freaking people out and being all negative do you know I'm trying to be real about it the only reason I'm saying this shit this week lads 
is I'm 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 angry and uh, frustrated at the responses I'm seeing online to the climate protesters, the protests, and I'm I'm very annoyed, um, especially on the likes of Facebook. And yes, you're supposed to get angry. Yes, you're supposed to be annoyed that people are protesting. It's they're they're supposed to inconvenience you. They're they're protests of inconvenience, lads. They're not doing it because they're not doing it because they're pricks. They're not doing it to piss you off. Yes, get angry. Yes, get pissed off. Don't get angry and pissed off with the protesters. You're missing the point. You're shooting the messenger. Get pissed if you want the protests to stop. There's only one way to make them stop, okay? You need to fucking talk to your TDs. You need to talk to the governments. You need to make it clear, wherever the fuck you are in the world, that now is, is... We can't just do it by ourselves. Okay? Individual action, lads, is grand... We can all try in our personal lives to reduce our, our personal carbon footprint. That's a brilliant thing to do. I try and do it as best I can. That's not enough. 70% of this shit is caused by 10 corporations in the world. It's caused by an utter hegemony on energy by oil companies. Okay? The governments need to stand up to their very, very wealthy, powerful bodies. The structures of power in this world are heavily intertwined and infiltrated by the fossil fuel industry. And the people in power need to stand up to their good friends. Or maybe the people in power who have good friends in the oil industry need to fuck off. And some new people need to get in power who are not good friends with people in the oil industry. That's, that's a big thing that needs to fucking happen. That's one way. And the other thing, in the meantime governments need to be seriously planting uh, native wildflower native broadleaf forests in order to absorb the carbon that has been emitted uh, in the atmosphere and global warming's happening all around you lads I was in London a couple of weeks ago fucking roasting it was roasting in Ireland some people say well it's freezing down in Australia in Australia at the moment it's pure cold uh, in the sea, it is, yeah, because the ice caps are melting around fucking Antarctica and it's making the water cold. It, global warming doesn't just mean everything is hotter. That's why we've got, we're calling it climate change. It, it's several mad things that are happening and kind of all happening at once. And most experts are saying we've got 10 years. 10 years for radical action. And I mean radical in a the Nazis are about to invade radical action Uh, society wide change of consumption led by governments as such, that's what actually needs to happen, so how did I get to this I apologise now for the long ramble lads because this isn't edited and I'm in a fucking park, how long have I been recording 33 minutes not too bad um, I got onto this because I, I, I emotion. This is what I was trying to get at. Okay. Um, logic doesn't seem to work on on most humans. You know, we're able to do a thing called cognitive dissonance. We all do cognitive dissonance. One of the reasons Greta Thunberg 
is so fucking on the ball with this climate shit and so angry and so defiant and so single-minded is Greta lives with a type of autism used to be called Asperger's syndrome but I don't think people who uh, I don't think people who have it like to like it to be called Asperger's anymore it's 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 they're they're somewhere on the the spectrum of autism and this is how they live their lives and this is how they experience their world and Greta is one of these people and Greta sometimes people on the autistic spectrum they don't experience what we call cognitive dissonance okay and cognitive dissonance is do you know like I know that cigarettes are bad I know fucking full well that cigarettes are bad but if I have enough pints I'm looking for a cigarette and I wake up the next morning and I hate myself for it okay but smoking is, a, is an example humans are able to do things that are bad for themselves in the face of glaring evidence our brain is able to lie to ourselves and, and we can just go ahead and do it okay cognitive dissonance and globally we're all in a state of cognitive dissonance about the climate where despite evidence we kind of just want to get on and kind of hope that someone else figures it out and Greta Thunberg is somebody she can't do cognitive dissonance and to be honest too you know you need a bit of cognitive dissonance too for the mental health situation I get asked an awful lot about climate anxiety Okay, people ask me, Blind, but will you talk about climate anxiety? Which is, there's a lot of people who are now experiencing mental health issues because the triggering event for them is, all right, the earth is heating up. We may be facing uh, some pretty bad shit. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons I, I... I'm kind of cautious talking about the climate on the podcast because I don't want to be triggering people's climate anxiety. But I, I, I try and come at things from a position of hope, lads. From a position of hope and action. So, but people always ask me, blind boy, can you talk about fucking climate anxiety? And you have to treat it the same way as any fucking anxiety. This cognitive dissonance that we experience about the climate... It's, it's our brain's natural defence mechanism to stop us being utterly overwhelmed by the facts Greta Thunberg it would appear like she, she, she is overwhelmed by the facts you know Greta speaks about intense anxiety and depression that she experienced at a young age from learning about facts about the climate about what's happening and what uh, may happen in the future so for someone like Greta it's very single minded shit needs to be done what is wrong with the rest of you people? That's why she's so passionate and why, she, why we must defend her and mind her because she's fucking 16 and we're adults and there's other adults that are taking fucking shots at them or shots at her. That's unacceptable. But, yeah, we have this cognitive dissonance and it's... It kind of exists to allow us to get on with our fucking lives because at the same time as well... Oh, what have I dropped? At the same time you can't be focusing 100% on the climate and trying to live your life because then you'd be very upset and very scared all the time but for some people that's actually happening so people say to me blind by talk about climate anxiety so what I'd say to you lads two seconds 
what I would say to you is now I know what you're hearing did he just take a drink out of a single use plastic bottle yes I did however it is not single use it is a plastic bottle that I'm refilling because fuck single use plastic same with my plastic bag it's, uh, repurposing reusing nothing wrong with single use plastic if you get multiple uses out of it then it stops being single use plastic so people say blind bite speak about climate anxiety because people are saying I'm getting panic attacks I'm getting depression I'm having great difficulty finding meaning in my life I'm having difficulty being happy uh, because I am forever and continually anxious about the climate it causes me great worry for my future for my children's future I wonder if I should have children all this type of shit um, and it's, it is drastically affecting people's mental health and what I would say to you you gotta treat it like any other fucking anxiety lads I am deeply concerned about the climate I go through periods of being uh, frightened about the climate do I experience climate anxiety no I do not by which I mean do I experience uh, worry about the climate to the extent that it prevents me from living a meaningful happy life on a day to day basis no I do not okay I won't allow that to happen I use my cognitive behavioural therapy on these thoughts um, now why won't I allow it to happen oh there's a wasp there's a fucking Spanish long wasp fuck off what the fuck is he hold on we're moving now did that stop the recording No, it didn't. There was a very long Spanish wasp. He's back. Oh, for fuck's sake. Hold on. Because there's a bit of mud on the ground. He's got one of those long arses. I'm not fucking with him. Hold on now. I don't want to turn off the recording. We're going to move a little bit. We'll go back over to that seat over there because those two business cunts are after going. Ironic that. There's me talking about my my rational... Uh, how I don't get anxiety. No, do you know what? a long Spanish wasp came over I've never seen him before he had a big long arse and a stinger and I'm like I'm not getting I'm not having a meeting with this man today that, that wasn't that was, a, that was a rational response to a, a perceived threat so we're back at the other seat now let's just make sure I didn't fuck with any of the audio levels so uh, yeah a long Spanish wasp came over there right climate anxiety and you know what, fair play to him. I'd never hurt that wasp. I don't want to fucking kill him. He serves his purpose. He's going to go over now and eat a dead rat or something or whatever wasps do. So best of luck to him. Best of luck. But uh, I just don't want to get involved with him today. That's not what my day is about. Um, I do, fuck, he's not over again, is he? No, he flew past. That was the second one. Whew. I don't get on with wasps, lads. I'll be honest, all right? I won't hurt them. But look, who likes getting stung? Not me. That's not what I want to do with my day here. The other thing... Yeah, I just... What if I'm allergic to that particular type of wasp? This new Spanish wasp? How the fuck did that happen in the middle of me talking about fucking... Anyway. Climate anxiety. Okay? Um, treat it like any other anxiety. I won't allow my, my day... To be ruined by... 
my own irrational response to a threat so here's the thing climate uh, you know the destruction of the climate is real the seriousness of the situation is real these are all facts these are rational things that are happening right and these are these are bad things so bad things are happening real bad things are happening okay so what I do is I ask myself well what's an appropriate response that I should have to these bad things to ignore them completely and to pretend they're not there to allow myself to be consumed by my own cognitive dissonance right that's an irrational response doesn't help me that just feeds the defence mechanism and that energy will find its it'll find its way out somehow in a, in a more subversive insidious insidious uh, expression of my behaviour so to ignore it is irrational similarly to allow myself to be so consumed by fear and anxiety around the climate that it prevents my happiness it prevents me having a sense of meaning a sense of purpose it prevents me from living and enjoying my day in the present moment that too is deeply irrational and it's also unhelpful it's unhelpful to me it's unhelpful to anyone around me it's unhelpful to the fucking climate like imagine this podcast lads if instead of me being uh, solution focused around the climate then instead I was just listing out my, my deepest fears and what if and what ifs what if this happens what if that happens how the fuck what, what good would that be what would that do it would, you'd turn off the fucking podcast it would make you more anxious you wouldn't want to engage with it so therefore if I allowed if I truly allowed myself to be consumed with uh, climate anxiety I'm now of no service to my community whatsoever Okay, I'm no service to anyone around me. I'm, I'm now part of the problem. Even though it's an expression of deep concern for the climate, I'm expressing it in an unhelpful way. Unhelpful to me and unhelpful to you. So by keeping my climate anxiety in check, I'm able to... Because you can get great meaning as well from making the changes in your life. Like, that's the other thing too. Take it back to... I did a podcast on Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl being someone who an existential psychologist who spoke about the book is called Man's Search for Meaning and his whole shtick was that he, he, even in he, he basically his psychology came from his time in a concentration camp and seeing the horrors of being in a concentration camp and people starving around him and dying and being executed and gassed and how he was able to observe how certain people throughout these horrors were still able to live with meaning I won't say happiness, but meaning, right? And meaning is what you're looking for. If you live a life of depression and a life of anxiety, you don't have meaning. And that's often the most alienating and sad uh, and painful part of it is you don't like being awake because your life doesn't have a sense of meaning. And that's one of the worst things about it being in the throes of a mental health crisis. So... You can find meaning in, like, let's just say next week, it's like you're going to go, right, okay, I'm going I'm to see how I get on with this uh, cutting my meat by 80% every week, which is something I started doing about a year ago. I only meet, eat meat maybe one or two days a week, or, or special occasions, you know, 
Um, like I'm over here in Spain now, so because I'm here in Spain, if there's some delicious meat later, I'll, I'll eat it. But then back home to Ireland, and I'm back on my fucking my lentil bullshit. But uh, you can find great meaning in action. So if you're if you're getting climate anxiety, you go, how can I find meaning in changes that I can make in my life? So you start to get interested in plant-based recipes. You start to think about can I start growing some shit out my back garden? Do I have the space to grow some vegetables? Can I do this? Can I learn about canning and preserving them? So, And these things that remove your carbon footprint, you're now engaging in a, in a creative and meaningful fashion with your world as a way to manage your anxiety around the climate. And you can get meaning from that. And that's proactiveness means that climate change and the threat is still going to be there it's still present but it, it's not it's not destroying your present moment the other thing with climate anxiety is yeah yeah it's frightening and it's scary lads but Jesus Christ there's a lot of other really fucking bad things that that happen people every single fucking day that you seem to be getting on grand how often do you worry about getting walloped by a boss and killed or it happening to someone that you love like that that's statistically far more likely to happen to you in your lifetime than you know getting killed by climate change like disease tragedy these are all parts of human existence awful scenarios are a given of human existence and you don't know if or when they will happen okay so there's already a bunch of shit in your life other than the climate that is potentially tragic yet we can live our lives and get on grand you can cross the road cross the road listening to fucking Sepulchora and getting on fine listening to tunes and not worrying about getting a slap of a bus so yeah the climate is fucking scary lads but there's, there's a load of fucking things you know if you're worrying about your children what if my children grow, grow up in a world where uh, they can't have access to fresh water and society collapses there's that but I mean you can go what if my children grow up into an anything and keep yourself awake at night what if your children grow up with uh, severe addiction issues and, and, and have to live, live a life of, of addiction? What if your children grow up and, you know, have to, have to suffer homelessness? What, what if your children grow up and are in a, an abusive relationship? What if your children grow up and they become an abuser? What if your children grow up and they become a criminal? What if your children grow up and one day they're down an alleyway and they get murdered? What if your children grow up and they're in a car crash? So you can what if about a load of different things and, and climate fits into that category of fucking what if, lads. It really does. So amongst all this, the realities of, of, of climate change and it is scary and it is frightening and it's okay to be frightened and scared of it. It's still just one of many what ifs in in the world the, the 
with or without climate change, pain and tragedy and horrible, terrible things are still a given of human existence. They are fucking inevitable. And throughout humanity, we've tried to live... You know, you know what the fuck is heaven? This imaginary concept where we can all live in a world free from pain and tragedy and uncertainty. It's not real. It's not real. Pain and suffering are part of human existence. And climate change is now just a new one on the list. And it's... it's To be getting climate anxiety, to be living a life where you don't have you don't have quality of life, and you don't have a sense of meaning, and you're suffering intense anxiety and the depression that goes alongside it, and now you don't have quality of life. And the the reason you don't have quality of life is because of your attitude towards a trigger. That's not that's not a way to live. Do you get me? That's that's not a rational response. It's not a helpful response to you. It's not a helpful response to your community. Okay? What you need to be doing is... Climate change is here. How do I react to it? Well, I'm going to react to climate change... In a rational and responsible way. Which means that... You're going to be proactive. You're going to be... You're going to move it, move from climate anxiety to climate concern. Concern is a rational response... We all need to be concerned about the climate. We need to be so concerned about the climate that we act on the climate. That's where you need to be. But from concern comes meaning. From proactivity comes meaning. And then you, if everybody lived like that, you move towards the new model of society where we have less conveniences... Uh, our model of consumerism shifts dramatically we are no longer purchasing based on irrational needs and desires and that's the other thing lads our current way of existence okay it's a fucking invention it's a post-industrial revolution invention that happened in the 1920s I did a podcast on it Edward Bernays Sigmund Freud's grandson since the fucking 1915 we existed in a society where we are being sold products not based upon our needs but based upon our desires often irrational desires we purchase we're being sold we're being sold better versions of ourselves people are insecure we're all insecure all of us are insecure and anxious and unsure of ourselves this is part of what it is to be a human being and within this insecurity it's very easy to exploit it we all want to be better looking we all want to be thinner, taller. We all want different fucking skin colour. We all want a different haircut. We all want to be loved more by the people around us. This is being human. That's what being human is. And advertising exploits it. That's what advertising does. And it does it in the shape of consumerism. You're not buying a bar of soap. You're buying a better version of yourself. And in a, in a society that is truly addressing climate, that shit's no longer a part of it. You'll go back to buying soap because it cleans you. And it's going to take a radical overhaul, but if everybody addresses it from a position of climate concern, I reckon it's possible. Um, right, did that record? Yes, it did. 
certainly the most chaotic outdoor live podcast yet. The last one. What did we have going on the last time? Interrupted by those boys. This time... Yeah, this, this was a bit chaotic, lads. That wasp. Okay. What did I want to talk about? Just a little plug for the fucking Cork Podcast Festival. I'm doing my own gig down there on the 13th in the Cork Opera House, right? It's nearly sold out. There's about 20 tickets left. But I just want to give a plug for the Cork Podcast Festival in general because it's their first year doing it and it's run by a couple of lads, Joe and Ed, who are promoters based down in Cork and they're just fucking sound lads. They're just really nice lads and I've worked with them for years in gigs and the thing is with the gigging community, if, if, if you're a, a professional artist, you have to work on, on a kind of a, the basis of trust. So when you meet promoters that are nice sound decent people who care about putting on a good show then you you tell other people about them you continue to work with them and you develop a relationship and everyone is sound to each other so Joe and Ed are putting on the Cork Podcast Festival their first year doing it Uh, I'm one of the headliners and I, I really want to see them do well on this first year because first years of festivals most like it's kind of an understanding that you're running at a loss okay so there's a lot of shit happening in Cork uh, this weekend. I've a tiny bit of a blurb here that I'd said I'd read out for the lads. And I'm not getting paid for doing this. I'm doing this to be sound because Joe and Ed, who are sound bastards, are running the fucking Cork Podcast Festival. And this is what happens when you're sound to people. When you're a, a, a decent fucking promoter who looks after artists and puts in a lot of work, selling shows, putting on a good show, then you respond in, in kind with fucking kindness uh, and and that's that's the world I want to live in lads so yeah Cork Podcast Festival is happening from Friday the 11th to Sunday the 13th of October and there's a load of shit at it right it, the West West Cork which was a really fucking popular podcast that they had on, on Audible they're doing shows there Alison Spittle Gaspior uh, Tara Noya Tara Flynn Um those conspiracy guys the creep dive there's like free podcasts that you can go and see as well there's people putting on free podcasts and it's happening all over Cork CorkPodcastFestival.com is where you go for tickets they have an app as well um, if you're if you're in Cork or if you're near Cork and you want to see some good shit find out about some podcasts see some live shows go to it and uh, support sound people who are working in the industry and doing a good job ok is it time for the Ocarina pause what type of pause will we have this week because I'm going to read you a new short story from my book, which is, yeah, speaking about fucking climate anxiety, get ready for a pretty depressing story, lads. But uh, I'm happy with it. I do enjoy it. Um, We'll just have a bit of Spanish silence pause, will we? Listen to the cars and the birds. So there was probably an advert in there for some shit Uh, right you know the crack this podcast is supported by you the listener every so often I might have a sponsor if they're sound but in general I I I don't want to get heavy into advertising because you start getting heavy into advertising and I can no longer deliver the podcast that I want to deliver which is on my own terms and something that's a back and forth between myself and yourself I want to keep this space ours to be whatever the fuck it wants to be 
and that's possible because it's supported by the listeners it's supported by you via the Patreon page so if you'd like to give me the price of a pint once a month right go to patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast and you can support this uh, podcast by becoming a patron right and it's a lovely model it's based on soundness and kindness if you can afford it do if you can't afford it no hassle you can listen for free no problem at all right and I just like that I like that model it's working out great so how how long is this going to be a long podcast is that an hour Jesus Christ okay ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt free dream come true baby it's me Kiki Palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's read out this uh, short story. How's my battery? Half. Okay. I'll take a sup of water. So, let me read out. Uh, this is a short story from my new book. Boulevard Wren and other stories which is going to be out November 1st please pre-order the book you can pre-order it at um, look if you're in Ireland I'd recommend easons.ie I think is the one uh, some of the orders I don't know the first however many uh, get a free print an exclusive print that's signed by myself I don't know are they gone yet I'm not sure but regardless pre- pre-order the book easons.ie and then, if you're living abroad, book depository is a good one. Uh, but other than that, it's going to be in shops on November 1st. I'm very happy with it. And I'd like to read you uh, a, 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 the second short story from the book, which I'm happy with this. I enjoy it. It's written in the third person, which allows me to be more literary. You can have fun with language when it's in the third person. You know, you can have a lot of fun with... Uh, you, c- you can have fun with prose. So I enjoyed writing this. It, it's very dark. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of... Uh, not a lot of laughs in this one. Uh, it's incredibly dark. I don't know when it's set. Um, Some people who read it... Think it's set in Ireland in the past. 
I don't know. It's it's like a it's like just like a dream. It's like a waking dream I had about either Ireland in the past or Ireland in the future. I don't know. But it's called Joe Lee. And hopefully, because I can read this out now and I won't get fucking interrupted by some Spanish bastard. Right, so let's fucking... Let's say a little prayer to Bahá'u'lláh. The, the prophet of the Baha'is. For the crack. Never said a prayer to Bahá'u'lláh. Why would I? Bahá'u'lláh. Can I read this uh, story uninterrupted by Spanish bastards, please? Alright. Okay. This is called Jolie. Bent over Gonzo Donlan has a string of pure frozen dribble that's hovering down between her lips and the few small stones she's arranging on the mass rock. Dented convections of dawn air threaten a thaw on the spit stick. A sermon hasn't been said on the altar for the best part of three weeks. Herself and Joe Lee Heffernan are searching for the priest Scanlan. Gonzo's arms are splattered with pricky scabs and itches, made worse by the greasy twine that's holding the burlap sack across her back. Her head is a mouse-brown mad wire halo drooped over a gaunt face of green teenage skin. And her heart is in the past, and her teeth are a shore full of shattered shells. Joe Lee whispers out that the cowled will have kept the priest tucked away for the warmth. Gonzo hardly raises the neck at this. Sound enters her ear holes as underwater dumb muffle. Her chest drums a thump of fear up into her mind. A purple hum of cloud skirts off a heather-bearded mountain three fields over by Garmin Lock with no promise of glimmer bursting through its belly. Pure pregnant with rain, Jolie flakes her eyes up at the fat cloud and feels a jealousy towards its size and girth. Watch that big dirty hape up above, Gonzo. Gonzo's eyes stay fixed on the stones. She's on her side, with one hand fidgeting them around, and she imagines that there are a half dozen scuttling lumps of turnips on a plate. She's undecided on whether the six pieces of flint should converge in the configurations of a cross, or as some class of triangle. The mind on her is gone blood dumb from hunger. Her activity is interrupted by a violent wretch of green sputum which dribbles down her chin and onto the pebbles. An attempt at a groan is made. This is met with numbness from Jolie, who is now scowling at the imposing cloud, mauve as a brain in the sky, trailing down dirty lengths of distant smudge, broken by a mustard smear of sideways sun that doesn't reach the grass below it. I saw you sucking down a thistletop twenty minutes back at the gate of Aldersmith's plantation. Gonzo doesn't listen to this. She splays out on the mass rock, exhausted from the strain that the ring of puke put over her body. Jolie is still fixed on the direction of the cloud and the smell of the wind. If it brings a wetting in their direction, all the journey and work is for naught. Rain brings worms and activity from birds and foxes and martens. That wet won't come over this way, Gonzo. Get up to fuck and start looking. For six hours in November cold... They had followed the edge of the river Boyne in search of the mass rock, crawling over the frost-hardened earth. 
Every grasp at the soil was a horizontal climb up a sheer cliff. Only last Thursday, Joe Lee had gotten her mouth on a ladle of sheep's broth from the soup kitchen in Navin Town. Gertie Laffin threw whispers about Father Scanlon missing three Sunday services. At Scanlon's mass, he was known to hand out rations of parsnip, which he stole from the landlord Bide. It's this parsnip bounty that has the two women up at the mass rock. Save for a few ill-advised thistles, Gonzo hasn't eaten a patch of food in 14 days. The soup in Navin Kitchen is unreliable. Once a week, the town blackens in a congregation of starving gaunts. Lines the length of fortnights. A pointless endeavour. The soup is a diluted shimmery broth over a scant mystery meat brawn. Brewed for hours in large batches, its nutritional value is questionable. When the anatomy is famished, normal digestive mechanisms cease to function correctly. The starving can suffer a painful esophageal fungus that causes any ingested food to be rejected, followed by an acidic verdigris bile brought up from the liver. The sheer effort that a starving bastard endures to digest food is enough to trigger a state of shock to the nervous system and a failure of the heart. Eating carries a risk with it. The dead are left where they die. Others, dazzled by the famish, follow suit, knowing that a drink of soup will put them down too. Snap out of it, Gonzo. In the mind given up now, there's a trinket full of priest parsnips round here that'll keep us going till the spring. Gonzo drops her head, dozy from the hunger journey. Jolie lets her rest. She has a few days on her. She has the blast of energy left from Thursday's soup in her. Her eyes gander around the tangles of emerald bramble that surround the grey mass rock her friend is spalled across. In front of the monolith, the ground is scant, and the muddy footfall from previous parsnip sermons spells out death in the clay. Jolie is a day or two away from collapsing. Every flex of her limbs has currency. She won't stand to her feet. The effort and exertion of placing the weight of her torso on her legs would consume too much energy. The very act of focusing her attention, the task of asking her mind to search for parsnips amongst thickets of wilderness, is a measured investment. On hands and knees, Jolie takes considered wipes with her palms in the grass, sloth-like, pushing apart green blades, inching forward, using the full splay of her frame to investigate as much ground as possible without expending too much energy. Her crawl takes her to a depression underneath a black thorn bush. Her eyes turn up from her nose to discover the scrunched corpse of Father Scanlon. The priest lies all bird-like, protruding bones under see-through skin, claws curled round a ragged leather satchel. Jolie falls forward onto Scanlon's chest and stretches out, making desperate pinches at the bounty. Her heart feels a loneliness and she rolls on her back with the satchel held above her face and she scratches at the inside pockets. Wooden rosary beads and bag lint fall down onto her neck. Jolie rises up on all fours and starts tugging and pulling at the dead priest's rags, frantic grasps searching for the treasury of parsnips that had initiated her and Gonzo's quest. A feathered dome affronts her forehead, 
when she lies back beside the corpse of the priest. There is a tart cotton desert inside her gob, and she becomes aware of the barren howl of her location. Tis clear to her that the priest had eaten any food he had before he died of the sickness. Low wind rolls, a growling drone, over on a distant hill, entrancing her into her own weak thoughts. The boost of adrenaline from the promise of food has left her deflated. The limbs ache with a wavy pulse each time the chest beats. A frost wind cuts the right-hand side of her face. The faith she had in her and Gonzo's survival is gone. She will die here on her back beside the curled priest. She thinks back to a year ago, before the crops grew dirty and wrong. She sees her son Dunica on bended knees with clumps of straw between his tiny hands, turning and wiring them into the shape of a man. Dunica's back felt hot when she placed her hand on his shoulder. A breathing son graced them both with a wave of security and happiness. Across the way was Patrick, skinning peas from their pods in a wooden bowl. His jaw smiled, but there was a worry on his mouth. She fights the blinky visions of his crippled body and dry hair, him howling spew into wet mud, the wicker basket in the corner hiding the sight of young Dunica's stiffened body from them both. Each attempt to bring back memories of happiness are assaulted by visions of Patrick's skeletal face and wide-open mouth as he crawled over her thighs and out the door of the hut in search of something to eat or drink. Death all around her, under the threat of a distant orange sky. Her memory is interrupted by a splutter from Gonzo, who is still alive on the mass rock. Jolie feels an anger. As if autonomously, Jolie's left hand stretches out with an energy that she didn't know she had. She feels around the body of the dead priest and envelopes a clasp of short fabric, pulling it taut. In her fingers she feels buttons, which she pinches off. The freezing skin of the priest's stomach under her palm. With a force, she begins pulling herself towards the corpse and up onto her knees. She looms over the body and sees the faded green copper buckle on the priest's baggy trousers. She removes the buckle, which has blunt edges. Holding it between both fists, she plunges it down below the chest of the corpse, into the soft vulnerability under the ribcage. She begins to drag, and belly flesh unfolds before her, revealing scant dashes of yellow fat and purpled casing. She cuts as far as the belly button and stretches the skin back, opening the priest up like curtains, innards exposed beneath her nose and she's thinking back to the butchering goats every November and the lie of the land when it comes to offal. Reaching into the priest, moving past the guts, piercing unknown membranes, touching the spine and searching around the back, exhuming the liver and kidneys, the kidney is offered up towards the lips. Saliva warms the walls of the mouth for the first time in weeks. She pauses, understanding that something as rich as a kidney could kill a woman in her state. She'll be dead in under a month anyway, she thinks to herself. It's worth the risk. It wobbles brown and purple in her hand, which is gawky from thick black blood. The top of the kidney is placed in her mouth. She begins to suck gently. The taste of iron invigorates her to her core. She moves her teeth around the freezing raw morsel. It has a rubbery resistance like a grape. 
her mind darts back to memories of full meals, to the experience of satiation. She is remembering the aesthetic joy of eating, the feel in the mouth of a clamber of buttery spuds, the ejaculation of saliva from under the tongue, the heavenly sensation that is a combination of both taste and smell that causes endorphins to shoot off from the brain and arrive in the stomach as an empty cavernous rumble. She's forgotten what eating felt like. As her teeth bite down on the resistant chewy kidney, she feels orgasmic with the tension, the expectation, chewing down slower and then pop. Her mouth fills with a sharp burst of piss and iron. She chews and savours the penny-sized lump of offal before the agonising swallow down her gullet. The kidney scrapes and scratches the whole way down. She is aware of the culinary journey this tiny piece of food is embarking on as it makes its way down her disused food shaft. She feels her stomach muscles whimper from disuse as they push the piece of kidney down into her barren gut. It makes the ringing in her ears rise to a hell crescendo, makes the headache pound harder. She rests in shivering anxiety waiting for that familiar wretch that kick in the underneath the belly button that travels all the way beneath your carriage to your arsehole the kick that pumps its all back up with that acidic green bile and a painful throat and a nose full of snot and bulging eyes and face sweat that bursts out cold and gasps for breath and a desire to scream it all out to shout it out but it doesn't come She waits. It doesn't come. Slight sparks of life dart around her skull. Breathing feels easier. Saliva drums around her tongue. She's keeping the kidney down. She feels the hunger again. Not the sickly hunger from weeks of no food, but the familiar hunger from before the earth got sick. From when she had plenty. From when she'd be so full, she'd leave the leftover buttermilk in the bowl for the cat. The hunger a woman has for a second spoon from the plate after a hard day's work. She bites into the kidney again. This time with relish, with purpose and without fear. She chews it down, savouring the iron, the offal, the urine. She feels scant energy. She feels her life coming back. She feels survival. Gaping down at the disemboweled priest, she cannot find any feeling of inhumanity. The agony of injustice fights back the rules of society. Her pride has has had her blinded. There's food all around. On the roads, in the ditches, in the brambles, in the cottages. She's just never seen it as food. Food has no personality, no thoughts or aspirations. It's just meat. She becomes the worms and the earth. The fungus, the bacteria, the crows. She is nature. After munching both of the priest Scanlan's kidneys... She takes the liver in her fist and crawls out from under the brambles towards Gonzo on the mass rock. Gonzo lies flat in a state that can't be referred to as either consciousness or unconsciousness. In the distance, the fat mauve cloud cracks a groan of thunder and Jolie's contempt and jealousy for the thick mass of elevated wet is gone. She hears the thunder as a celebration and she identifies with it. She drags herself up beside Gonzo and pushes away the pebbles that her friend has been arranging so neatly. She pulls away a piece of the priest's liver, pinches it in her fingers. It wobbles cheerfully under Gonzo's nostrils. Her eyes open. There's an anxiety in them. 
For all her deathly condition and her weakened brain and body, in Gonzo's eyes is concern of morality that's been triggered from far off in the back of her mind. Gonzo knows that this is human flesh. Ate it, fucking ate it, or die on the rock. Gonzo is not responsive. Jolie wipes the liver piece on Gonzo's lips and in around her yellow teeth. A tongue darts out and a puff of breath. Jolie notices the wretched fish egg stink from the breath and is enamoured by it. Feels a sense of victory that her body is registering smells again. Jolie has a determination, driven by fury and tears. She thinks back to her son Dunica, dying from the sickness and hunger in her lap. Patrick, pulling his hair in balls and hysterics in the corner. Jolie offers the liver to Gonzo's lips. Gonzo chews. Jolie uses her new strength to wrap her arms around her friend. She gently sits her up. Pulling the fibre in Gonzo's body won't have the strength to pull the liver down. And that assistance of gravity is required. Jolie has Gonzo in a hug. Her head is resting on her shoulder. Behind Gonzo in the distance is the furious bastard of a cloud, roaring out thunderclaps and letting out flashes of activity in its fat folds. The cloud is Jolie's brain, taking nutrients and vitamins and energy, flashing activity and electrodes sending power to the muscles. She can feel the activity in Gonzo, can feel the liver working down her esophagus and producing a resonant rumble that she experiences empathically in her own chest. The liver is animating Gonzo. They both rest on the mass rock. The cloud has spread out, gone from black violent purple to that cynical Irish grey. It rains down on top of them. The freezing rain is a welcome sensation on the skin of the two women who've just got their energy back. They feel it dance on their bare toes and tickle down their cheeks to their chins. Gonzo sucks rain from her lips to wash down the liver. Her eyes stare at nothing pupils like a stagnant pond the flesh taste is carving a future trauma into her mind they both get to their feet and make work on the rest of the priest scanlan eating with fervor each of his lungs the rain washes out the blood from his body and pulls into the open hole of his belly joe lee reaches into the blood water and tugs out the heart places it in the leather satchel for later gonzo watches on her teeth gritted together her wild tangle of curls flat and wet against her forehead. Have you no respect for them for at all for that man? Would you not leave the heart in his chest? What use or difference is a heart or liver or a kidney to the dead? We'll both see fucking hell for this day. We're living in hell, Gonzo. This is hell. The only heaven I see here is the maggots getting fat off the priest if we'd have left him. You had this plan, didn't you? You'd no intention of coming up here for a bounty of parsnips. You knew he'd be gone. Co- he'd be f- fresh from the cold weather. If I had it planned, then I wasn't aware of it. But some force guided me, brought me around to my senses. While I was dying with humanity, with pride, fuck that shit. I'm out here surviving. Look at you standing up straight with a sparkle in your eye. The second you're back around to your senses, you're throwing guilt at me. Gonzo backs down. Jolie stands tall. Her skeletal hands enveloped like a parcel, tell tales of her past life, breaking horses by the lock, jocking wild fillies, shoving ropes in their mouths, tugging a tameness out of them until their lips bled and her hands burned. Find money at the market for the tamed horse, 
tough fucker is Joe Lee. She looks down toward the sparkle of the bine, a quarter mile away, and both women bend down the hillside, erect, with bellies full of priest. The sky has darkened to a curtain. The road near the river is a carved-out mud path. Every dandelion, thistle or tree bud has been stripped by the starving. They spot a gang of mudlarkers crawling on the silt shore up to their oscars in stink sludge. The air smells like eggs. It is the Dennehy crew, their numbers diminishing by the week. Paddy Dennehy once made a fine living from mudlarking, crawling through river sludge with his brothers, retrieving bottles, vases or scrap metal from the ships that made it up the bine. If they were lucky, they'd come across a Bellarmine jug, a ceramic vessel of odd shape, given to natives, to navvies for rum rations, with carved out effigies of wild woodmen, overgrown with hair, fluttering around forests like animals. The jug thrown overboard by a drunk scut, whose sea legs gave him a blast of anxiety when he caught a glimpse of coast for the first time in six months. Any joy, Paddy? calls Joe Lee. Paddy Dennehy's white eyes look out from a body covered entirely in thick black mud. There is no verbal response out of Paddy. The hunger has him ready to go. Paddy is searching for mussels on the shore to no avail. The river life in the bine has disappeared over the past six months. When a man dies in his cottage, leaving behind a horse or an ass, the starving animal instinctually travels towards water. Hundreds of ownerless horses and asses have gone to the bine to die on the shore since the hunger began last year. Their decomposed bodies fill the current with a putrefied effluent, poisoning every parched eel or mussel for miles down river and putting the thirst on Navin town. Give him the heart, Joe, says Gonzo. Tell him it belongs to a sheep. Look at the state of the pure poor cunt. Joe Lee obliges. She reaches inside the leather satchel and removes the priest's heart. The black mud dangle of Paddy's face cracks a white smile that looks like a half moon on a June night. He carefully places the heart in the crusting pocket of his tunic, in among the mud, as though he won't eat the heart in the presence of another for fear of having to share. Paddy then hands a bellarmine jug to the women. We'll take that into Navin town and sell it to a sailor who's lost his, says Gonzo. We can't go back into town, says Jolie. They'll see the life in us. They'll think we've been robbing food from a landlord. What if we crawl, says Gonzo. I'm not getting back down on my knees. We've to continue what we started. Twenty minutes away. Down the fields by Garmin Lock is a collection of abandoned cottages. The two women venture down to rest their heads for the night. When they get there, the familiar signs of death are present. Disused milk churns, scraps of fabric in the muck that probably had bones underneath. They push open a door to a barren space. The tin roof will keep them dry, but the open window lets in the cold. I'm feeling the hunger again, Jolie. Where will we find something fresh? There's nothing around here, Gonzo. We might have to travel as far as Drada. Anyone who was here is long gone. Their remains would only make us worse. A silence comes upon him. Their hopes dashed. The priest was a lucky find. Anyone alive is going to be congregating near the towns in hope of soup. The towns are a hostile place for two bures with a look of satiation on them. 
As pitch darkness wipes over the room, a small blast of yellow light becomes apparent in the distance. A cottage above on Neary's Hill has a distant hint of a candle in the window. The pair leave the abandoned hut and venture up towards the light. As they draw closer, they slow down, their pace so as not to spook the inhabitants inside. Jolie creeps up to the gable window to take a look inside. Sitting around a single candle for warmth is an elderly woman. Not long for the world by the looks of her, but clearly in ownership of some type of food if she's the only one left. I think that's Ida O'Donovan, the cooper's wife, says Jolie. Hasn't she sons, says Gonzo. From the emptiness of the cottage, Jolie can tell that Ida has sold every possession she owned, from her husband's tools to the kitchen table and the cooking pot. These are all the signs of a woman whose sons have been given the money to leave the country. She's alone. Gonzo has the rumble in her tummy. Her previous morality has drifted away and the urge to survive has overcome her. What'll we do? Should we wait for the hunger to take her? Lamp her frame all shivers. She has no hope. We could go back to that hut for a day or two and wait. Then come back up when she's dead. If she can light a candle, we could light a fire. And then on the heart and roast her. An old one could look howled out for a week, Gonzo. Look at the eyes on her. Every wrinkle on her face is a past bitterness. She'd be stubborn. She could last longer than us. You'll have to go in and kill her. I'll have to kill her. Why would I have to do it, Joe? Because I ripped open the priest and saved your gowling life. And you embarrassed me down by the mudlarkers. Putting me on the spot like that. Forcing me to trade the heart for a fucking ceramic jug. You're the reason we've the hunger darting back on us. Gonzo creeps off like a bowled cat. Towards the door of the hut. While Jolie bowsies outside the window. Jolie notices a small brass box under the old one's chair. Gonzo has the adrenal bulging veins of someone who's about to murder. Jolie worries that Gonzo's thumping heart might send a rush of blood to her head and that would knock her unconscious and alert Ida O'Donovan. With a gallant foot, Gonzo buckles through the door bolt and has the old one on the ground in instance. She kneels over the woman's chest and dashes her head against the hurt several times over, overcome with the famish. Ita's limp skull pools blood around the honest slabs and Gonzo bends down to suck it off the ground. Her mouth is tingling from the memory of the priest's liver earlier that day. She's gone greedy. While Gonzo is contorted on top of the woman, Joe Lee appears behind her, taking the priest's buckle that she stashed in the satchel with the heart. She pounds it into the back of Gonzo's neck, juttering and staggering it into the cord of her spine, killing her in seconds, like the way you'd kill a crab. Now, Jolie paces back and forth, with a loathing dread across her. She reaches for the brass box under Ida's chair. When she opens it up, there are metal coins inside. Either the old one's sons are still around, or they died before she could give them the money to leave. Jolie takes the buckle to both of the bodies and removes the soft organs. She teases a vulgar kidney over the flame of the wax candle that the old one has huddled her over for a month. The forgotten smell of cooked meat floods her nostrils and translates into her mind as hopes and dreams. She feeds herself good. 
She fills her belly until a sleep falls over her. Cornflower morning light excuses itself into the cottage that honks of iron from the cooked blood. The candle is extinguished. Jolie Phoenix is up with a strength in her legs that she hasn't felt in months. With the strength comes a guilt. She refuses to let her eyes hit the floor. A dull sickness maroons her torso, followed by, the, by a fear that the guilt will make her puke up all the fullness in her tummy. She leaves the cottage with a refusal to look back or think about what has happened. She thinks back to her son Donica with his bowled smile and curious eyes and fidgety hands. Patrick with his fine shoulders and unapologetic laugh that would howl across a valley, a valley whenever one of the cats did something gas. His deathly face and sickened posture do not intrude on her memory this time. She has the strength in her to push those thoughts back, to remember them in life and not in death. She heads south toward below the bine, across the heather dells, through the mud. The sky has cleared from the day before and a blue frost is back. She passes a ragged donkey with a dumb stare and protruding ribs, heading for water to die. Upon reaching the Glencool bog, she comes across the triangular-shaped rock that leads to her old holding. The tiny hut where she lived a happy life comes towards her from the distance. She carefully walks up the yard of the farm. Nothing lies where it was the day she left. Her horse reins are gone, taken by scavengers, the butter churn gone too. Only the stone hut without a door is as she remembers it. Vinegar dread climbs up from her chest to her forehead and tingles down to the end of her limbs. Her breaths are large and laboured with the terror of seeing the remains of her son and husband. There they are as she left them, Patrick's rags and pressed against the floor. His skeleton and the brown skin taut across the bones like a bowed on his mouth wide open she carefully pushes over the wicker basket to see the collection of bones and fabric that had been her little son the body she and Patrick refused to acknowledge such was the distraction of their sickness going out to the bog and the side of the gable she gathers armfuls of dry heather from under logs and places them in the heart of the fire on the mantelpiece she finds the naps of flint she had used to light many a fire to keep her family warm. With purpose, she cracks them together and bright sparks flicker onto the dried matter. A flame engulfs the fireplace. She carefully collects the remains of her son and husband and burns them down to dust. The funerary respect she affords the remains brings about an internal queasiness. She wonders why these remains are people, but the priest... Gonzo and Ida O'Donovan were just food. She wonders if she can ever live among other people again. When the fire is burnt out, she takes the Bellarmine jug that Paddy Dennehy's mudlarkers traded her for the heart. She wipes it clean. It is a tan ceramic with a custard glass. Its raised edges depict a bearded man with hair all over his body, a mad savage of the woods. With a careful hand, she flows her family's ashes from her palm into the jug. Joe Lee screws it closed. She pats the old one's money in the satchel. She's taken the ashes on a ship. Okay, thank you very much. That was Joe Lee. 
yeah, a bit of a fucking dark one there, actually, to, to have read. Ha- having done a, cli- a, a podcast there around climate change and hope and purpose and climate anxiety, that's, that's uh, speculative fiction, right? I don't know what it is. It's either during the famine or it's either in 200 years' time. But uh, there you go. I hope you enjoyed it. I've never—I don't think I've ever written out a thir- read out a third-person story before. So I hope it was easy to follow. And I—I did—I get distracted by some. There was a few Spanish children. There's some very aggressive birds doing a doing a bit of uh, continental continental fucking chirping here. How long was that? I can't even see it because the sun's after moving around to point at me. Probably long. Um, yeah, Jesus, look, I, I, I st- this was a fucking ramble in a park because I didn't have notes. So, And I went on many, many a tangent. One of the things I said at the start that I wanted to get back to, I was talking about cognitive dissonance and emotion and the importance of... We tend to we tend to respond to emotion rather than we do logic and reason and facts. And this is one of the issues around climate anxiety and climate change. The vast majority of people are don't give a fuck about the facts because cognitive dissonance is, is is creeping in. But emotion does work. And I was comparing it back to World War Two. When you've got the Nazis, when you've got a group of people saying, "We want to kill you and fuck up your way of life," we all very easily change our everything about our existence to try and fight it and not allow it happen so we need something like that for climate change so there's an angry part of me that started to shame fucking climate deniers online especially the older ones uh baby boomers and and what i say to them is if if i see them complaining about fucking protesters or saying that climate change is a hoax i just say to them when the Nazis were invading, you were hiding in your fucking house and you weren't fighting. You coward. And I reframe their refusal to acknowledge climate change and their ignorance as a type of unpatriotic cowardice. You reframe the climate threat as the emotional threat of an invading fucking army and you say something to them. If it was the Nazis, you'd have been hiding. And all of a sudden, it works. Like, I, I, I hate having to stoop to that because it's not honest. It's essentially what it is, is it's propaganda. I'm using tools of propaganda at that very moment. Propaganda is, is when you appeal to emotion instead of logic and rationality. That's, that's why propaganda fucking works. Bringing it back to Edward Bernays, the inventor of, of uh, consumerism, Freud's fucking grandson, or, or, or nephew, whatever the fuck he was, straight up he said you know, propaganda before the Nazis was not a negative word and he used propaganda to advertise so I'm starting to use emotion to shame climate change deniers by simply saying if, if this was the Nazis you'd be hiding your, your inaction and refusal to acknowledge the, the clear messages from science is cowardice and you are not fighting the enemy and that seems to get through to a lot of people. It seems to work when, when I frame it in that way. Or what I've started saying to... You know, Irish people. Older ones again in particular. But like... They're complaining about... Oh, these fucking protesters up in Dublin. Extinction Rebellion. Time wasters. They don't have jobs. 
standing in the middle of the street. I say to him, when the 1916 rebellion happened, there were people in the streets roaring abuse and hurling, hurling fucking food and rotten tomatoes at the 1916 rebels who were trying to fight for the freedom, freedom of Ireland under British oppression. And the vast majority of people in Dublin begrudged them. They, they hated the rebels for their act of great inconvenience of taking over Dublin for the day to have a fucking bloody war of conflict to try and fight the Brits and to, the thing with 1916 it wasn't about winning a war 1916 was about creating a spectacle so large it couldn't be ignored an inconvenience so large it couldn't be ignored and it fucking worked and I do compare the Extinction Rebels to the 1916 Rebels because they're not laying down their lives they're not doing it with guns and bombs but they're creating a gigantic spectacle of inconvenience that must not be ignored so I say to these people if you were around in 1916 you'd be throwing fucking rotten tomatoes at James James Connolly's crippled body as the Brits pull it out of the GPO you'd be one of the begrudgers in the crowd throwing fucking throwing, throwing rotten apples at Michael Collins and when you frame it like that it gets their attention. It's why a few weeks ago I had the podcast Chucky Garlan trying to reframe climate action in an anti-colonial sense. And yeah, I'm I'm using I'm using the uh, emotional logic of propaganda to get through to certain people because it's just not good enough anymore. If you won't listen to scientists, if you won't look at evidence, what else can you do? You're a person of emotion then. Your cognitive cognitive dissonance is too strong. So I need to draw attention. I need to I need to get your attention through your worldview. And when you say to him, you you'd you'd have hidden in cowardice at the Nazis, or you'd have spat on Padraig Pierce or James Connolly, that gets fucking attention. And you have their attention then. And I don't know, it might work. I don't know. Um, I don't know how comfortable I am with it, but maybe there's better ways to appeal to emotion. Logic and facts uh, doesn't appear to be working on the vast majority of people. You need the emotional thing to get to get the widespread climate climate action and awareness and concern that's needed. Um, all right, God bless uh, for anyone that joined late on this podcast. Yes, I'm in Spain. Uh, yes, I know that flying to Spain is not great on the old carbon footprint, but what I do is I calculate the carbon and I, I donate money to some someone that fucking plants trees based on my carbon emission, alright? This anti-climate change bit of... Uh, I, I notice you are caring about the climate, however... Uh, certain aspects of your life are not environmental yeah I know Donald sorry but uh, you know it's it's like that meme it's like oh I I see you want to I'd see you want to improve society somehow yet you participate in society yeah I, I, I can't live my life with a zero net carbon footprint it's not fucking possible it's not possible it's not possible it's n- even even if I was to decide to turn into Buddha and sit against a tree and meditate with no food until I fucking die. 
right? Even if I decide I'm going to sit against a tree and just meditate and then die and consume no food, a truck's going to have to come along and fucking drag my corpse away. And then a JCB's going to have to dig my grave. So it, it is not possible right now to be 100% uh, carbon neutral. And just because certain aspects of how I live my life are not environmentally friendly does not mean that I or you um, don't have to take action or call other people out. Because that's another thing. You wear a plastic bag on your head. Yes, I do. It's a repurposed plastic bag, Donald. Do you know what I mean? All right, I'll leave you go. I'd say this was very long, was it? i leave you go. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you had a nice ASMR podcast hug. This might be one that you listen to over a couple of days. Um, I hope I didn't freak anyone out. I hope I was positive. I hope my message was one of uh, action and positivity and meaning rather than despair. Fuck climate despairists. To mind them, they're only agents. They're up there with the deniers. Yart. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 